A baby changes everything, parents. Can I get an amen? We're going to read some scripture and then we're going to pray. We're going to jump into the Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph. If you don't know who Joseph is, you're about to find out. Matthew chapter 1, Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. Verse 18. Now, if, if you're like me before I read, if you're like me, sometimes when the preacher gets up and puts more than three verses, I struggle to pay attention. Anybody else like that? So I'm going to ask you uh, to do what I would ask myself, and that is uh, to try really hard to take in uh, these verses, this scripture that we're going to read today. This is going to show us, give us a glimpse into the truth of the Word of God that we're going to come around this morning. In case you're unaware, uh, today's conversation is not my ideas, not my opinions. We don't need any of that. We need the truth of the Word of God. Can I get an amen? So here we go, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Did you read what I just said? Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. So Joseph finds out that his fiance has become pregnant. And she has the audacity to tell him, hey, Joseph, it's, uh, it's not what you think it is. Uh, it's, it's actually God. Joseph obviously struggles to believe what Mary's saying. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph is assuming that his fiance has cheated on him, has become pregnant, but because he's faithful to law, he's a good man, he, he, he's pondering and, and, and thinking about, okay, well, I'm not going to expose her to disgrace, so I will divorce her quietly. I think that's wisdom on how to handle conflict in relationships, is to handle it quietly, not to expose each other. Argue on Facebook, can I get an amen? All right, we'll move on, verse 20. But after, after he had considered this, I mean, think about, think about Joseph. Think about this. Your fiance comes to you and, and tells you this. So he's considering how to handle this, this situation. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God tells Joseph, hey, that sounds crazy, but she's not lying. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Somebody say Jesus. Come on, this is church. Somebody say Jesus. Because, this is one of the most important becauses in the Bible, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. We've seen this prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up from probably the craziest dream of his life, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him to do. That's another moment to pause and think about the obedience of Joseph. How often I wake up and I don't do what God has asked me to do. This story of Christmas is found through the, even the obedience of, of Joseph. 
When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. Verse 25, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. If you don't know what that means, you can look it up in the Greek later. And he gave him, he did what God asked him to do. He gave him the name Jesus. Why don't we pray? Our online campus, we love you. We welcome you again. Let's pray all together here in person and online. Jesus, we thank you. Oh, Holy Spirit, there you are. We thank you for who you are. As we step into this Christmas season, God, that we would come before you in your house, before your word, with humble, open hearts and minds that would be open to the truth of your word, to be convicted by your word, to be changed and transformed by your grace and your truth. Holy Spirit of God, I personally pray for your grace, your authority, your power, your anointing, God. I am so aware that I am nothing without it. And God, I'm going to change my tactics this morning. I'm going to pray for the Buffalo Bills instead of the Jets. And we're going to see if that works. And everybody said. Everybody said. Thank you. Amazing keys. A baby changes everything. This is a statement that I heard many times before I had children and did not realize the power of that statement until I had children. Do you, do you remember your preconceived, for, for any parents here today, your preconceived ideas of how you would parent before you had children? Like, do you remember judging parents in restaurants <laughs> with their toddler screaming, watching an iPad? Oh, we're, we're not gonna do screen time. We're not gonna use iPads. And then you have kids and you try to eat out and you want to stay longer than appetizers? Here, sweetie, here's Bluey. And you're going to watch Bluey because Daddy wants dessert tonight. Parents, can I get an amen? Maybe you've traveled, been on a plane before you had kids, and you hear that screaming toddler on the plane, and maybe you judge them like I do. And like, can you, can you do a better job at parenting, please? Can you make that thing stop? screaming and then you have kids and and all you have to do is make eye contact with that parent and you know that you're both parents because you can see the pain in their eyes and just give them the hunger game salute like you can do this you're gonna make it have you ever traveled with children i don't recommend it Brooke and I, we flew across the country this year with our children. I want to show you a photo of my son in an airport. This is Lachlan. This is a three-hour layover from hell. He took his shirt off, wouldn't put it back on. Those headphones are plugged into nothing. That is purely to impress the ladies. We didn't buy that bag of Doritos. We don't know where he got those Doritos from. That little monster thinks he's Bon Jovi. 
He's not living on a prayer. He's living on timeouts. And if you could pray for him because he needs Jesus. Take that photo down. The baby changes everything. I remember our first baby in the hospital when Liv was born, our daughter. As soon as I saw her, there's tear ducts activated in my eyelids that I didn't even know existed. I see this beautiful little girl and there's this overwhelming sense of this unconditional love for this little human being that I would do anything for. It doesn't matter what she does, I'm gonna love her. And then there's that, that overwhelming, terrifying, humbling moment of leaving the hospital with your first child because we are so aware, we have no idea what we are doing. We're two kids in, another one on the way, and we still have no idea what we're doing. There are two elves in our home that get our children to behave. There are two six-inch stuffed dolls that are better at parenting my children than me. A baby has changed everything in my life. Everything about my life. It's changed the way that I drive. It's changed the seating arrangement in my car. It's changed my routine in the morning and my routine at night. It's changed the way that I sleep. Parents, can I get an amen? It's changed what's on our fridge and in our fridge. It's changed our pantry. It's changed our house layout, the rooms in our home. It's changed the volume level in our home. It's changed the movies we watch. It's changed the music I listen to. There is the soundtrack of Sing 2 that is on loop in my brain. It's changed everything, and I'm not complaining. I'll complain a little bit because Brooke's not in service today. She's in Wave Kids. While a baby changes everything, may we consider, may we consider the life of Joseph. A baby that changed everything in his life. In fact, it changed all of humanity. But it changed Joseph's life in a way that no other dad has experienced in the history of mankind. Joseph, his fiance, comes to him and says, hey, I'm pregnant. And uh, you know it's not yours. And it's Hard to explain, but it's not what you think. It, it's, it's God. And, 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 and then Joseph struggles with this conversation. And, and then God shows up and tells Joseph, hey, it, it's, it's true. Joseph, your fiance Mary, she's going to have a son. But, but, but Joseph, we've already given him a name. And now if I'm Joseph, a part of me is like, well, if this is all happening, can I at least get some naming rights? Like, can we call him Joe Jr.? Why is it that God already had in mind the name of Jesus? Why didn't God leave it up to Joseph to name this son? I mean, can you imagine if, if God did leave it up to Joseph and Jesus is born and Joseph turns to Mary and is like, ah, you know what, he kind of looks like a Chad. <laughs> we change the way that we worship. Can you imagine singing, open the eyes of my heart, Chad? Doesn't feel right. Why? Church, catch this. Why is the name Jesus so important? What did the angel 
of the Lord tell Joseph, hey, hey you're, you're to name him. This is important, Joseph. You're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Oh, church, there is something about the name Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. Salvation from what? Salvation from our sin. The name that is above every other name. There's something about this name that causes the demonic to cower in fear. The name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The name of Jesus that heals every disease and every sickness that says to the lame, walk and they pick up their mat and they run. The name that calls the blind to see, the name that has the power to condemn, yet he chooses to save. Oh, there's something about this name, church, the author and the finisher of our faith. The name of Jesus that was slain before the foundations of the earth. Our Alpha and Omega, the cornerstone, our deliverer, the high priest, the head of the church, the Holy One, our Redeemer, the resurrection and the life, the rock on which I stand. The name of Jesus that is the only way, the truth and the life. The name of Jesus. Some about that name. The name that no one comes to the Father but through this name, Jesus. The name of Jesus that is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is the name that sticks closer than a brother. It is the name that is the Prince of peace and the Lord of lords. It is the name that has saved you and has saved me from our sin. There is something about the name of Jesus. And today we celebrate how right God was in naming his son Jesus. Can we take five to to 10 seconds and thank God for this name of Jesus. Come on, church. In this Christmas season, can we thank him? Oh, can we marvel at the name of Jesus? My goal is that we would reflect and remember the name of Jesus this Christmas season. And there's something in this name that I believe is important for us to consider this Christmas. In fact, it is this thing that makes the Christmas story possible. Without this, we can miss the power and weight and magnitude of the Christmas story. If you're taking notes, write this down. It is humility. It is the humility of Jesus that makes Christmas possible. See, if we're not careful, if we're not careful as followers of Jesus, we can limit Christmas to just Santa, lights, festivities, and I'm all about it. I love all of it. I act like an 11-year-old around Christmas. I love it. I have an inflatable polar bear with Santa in my front yard, and if that offends you, I'm going to get a bigger one next year. Oh, but if we're not careful, we can limit this Christmas story to the shadow of the reality of Christmas because it is humility that allows me to begin to marvel at the power of Christmas. It is humility that opens my eyes 
to just how dead I was to my sin. It is humility that opens my eyes to how good the grace of Jesus is. It is humility that opens my eyes to how much I need his grace and forgiveness for my sins. It is humility that opens my eyes to marvel at the name of Jesus that he would humble himself for you and me. You see, church, in humility, Christmas becomes, I believe, one of the most powerful times of reflection and remembrance. It is in humility that I can begin to marvel at his name. Can I get an amen? amen. Philippians 2, Paul writes, think this in yourselves. Church, ca catch this, catch this. Think this in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, in, who existing in the form of God did not consider being equal with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by becoming in the likeness of people and being found in appearance like a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death that is death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, also God exalted him and graciously granted him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why we're here this morning. To the glory of God the Father. I don't know... If you've ever traveled without children, with a friend, like a buddy, in my context, like a golf trip, and you're with your friend, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, and you get upgraded, upgraded to first class and they don't, and if you're, don't judge me, if you're like me, how quickly I step in to thinking that I belong in first class, I turn to my friend, have fun, and 37C, you peasant. <laughs> Something you would not see me do is after taking off, pondering and thinking to myself, you know what? Oh, man, I love and appreciate that friend so much. I'm going to walk back there. I'm going to walk up to the person sitting next to my friend in 37B. I'm going to say to them, hey, it, would you... Would you mind changing seats with me? You could go sit in first class. I just can't bear to think of not sitting six hours next to my friend. Are you sure you want to do that? Like, don't you have fully laid back seats in first class? I, I do. But I just want to be next to my friend. I don't mind sitting here pressing the recline button in the seat actually going forward instead of backwards. <laughs> they were going to serve filet mignon for dinner. And I don't mind eating back here. Stewardess, what, what is for dinner back here? We're actually, out of all of our options, the only option left is a vegan option. That shouldn't even be an option, but I will suffer through this meal. Drinks were free in first class. I don't mind paying back here. They gave everybody iPads to watch movies up there. I think I can see a little TV coming out of the screen. Stewardess, can I get some headphones? Tells me they're in the seat pocket in front of me. It's a cup and a string to listen to the movie. 
you wouldn't see me do that. I'm not giving up my first class status just to sit next to my friend. Church, this Christmas, may we remember that we live in the grace and goodness of God because Jesus humbled himself and he gave up his status and he emptied himself, took on the status of humanity, fully God and fully man, willing to not show up in glory, but be born into a poor family in a shed, in a manger, grow up in a no-name town, walking earth, facing the same sin that you and I sin, yet he did not sin. Jesus starting his church that he chooses you and I to be a part of. Gathering disciples and allowing those disciples to desert and betray him. This Jesus who remains silent in trial and instead of calling down a thousand angels, Jesus chooses to face humiliation. Beaten for our transgressions. Humbles himself to take your place and my place on the cross. Suffocating on that cross, dying on that cross. The humility to take our place. And God the Father exalting his son in his humility. Church, my point is, my point is this Christmas, may we remember that Jesus humbled himself. And Jesus calls you and I to walk in this humility. Did you know that? The Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. How often I do things out of selfish ambition. The Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in Humility. The Bible says God resists the proud. The Bible says God shows favor on the humble. And in case you haven't noticed, in our sinful nature, it is not always easy to wear humility. In fact, in my sinful nature, I prefer to wear pride. It comes naturally to me. How often I treat humility like my daughter treats wearing a jacket in winter. <laughs> Parents, have you ever faced this? Where they go through this stage where they just want to find out how cold they can get outside without a jacket? Hey, sweetie, it's negative uh, 37 degrees outside, and the parents are going to judge me at the school drop-off if you don't have a jacket on, and so I need you to put this on because you're going to freeze. No, Dad, I don't want to wear a jacket. I'm not cold. Your lips are blue and you're shivering. Pretty sure you're entering into hypothermia. I need you to put this jacket on. No! I'm not cold. I'm not going to wear the jacket. How often I do the same thing with God. God, I don't want to put on the jacket of humility. I would rather be cold and prideful. And if we were to walk in the closet of spiritual clothing and decide whether or not we're gonna put on the jacket of humility or the jacket of pride, I think it's important we understand what humility looks like. So what does humility look like according to Jesus? There's this moment in scripture where Jesus gives us a glimpse into humility according to the kingdom of God. 
And, and, and the story we're about to read, I laugh because the disciples, they invoke this answer from Jesus, but their discussion and their argument, I see myself in the shallowness of their discussion. They're arguing about who's the goat disciple, who's the greatest of all time. They've heard Jesus brag about John the Baptist, and in one sense, it's a good thing that they want to be great for the sake of the gospel. They're asking Jesus, well, who's the greatest? Matthew chapter 18. Y'all still with me? Online, if you're still with me, you type amen in the comments or go Jets, whatever you prefer. At that time, the disciples came up to Jesus, and at this time in the disciples' journey with Jesus, they had sacrificed a lot to follow him, and yet they're still figuring out what it means to be a disciple. And so they asked Jesus this question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus does something interesting that surprises everybody who was present. He, it's, the Bible says this, verse 2, and calling a child to himself, he had him stand in their midst. This surprises them because children in the historical cultural context wouldn't have even been welcomed into this conversation. They would have been shooed to the side. And yet Jesus invites this young boy to stand in the midst of them and he says this, truly I say to you, unless you turn around and become like young children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus knows something about the way that his disciples think. He's not speaking to the foolishness and sinful nature of children. Parents, can I get an amen? Jesus knows that the disciples, in the context of this day, that they would see children and understand children as fully vulnerable and dependent on their mother or father. And their only chance of survival would be dependent on their mom or dad. Verse 4, Jesus says this, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this person is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child such as this in my name welcomes me. So what does humility look like according to Jesus? Well, first of all, I love that Jesus' teaching contrasts the culture and conventional wisdom of the day like it still does today. You see, society saw humility as weakness, yet Jesus elevates Humility as a hallmark of true Christian greatness. So what does humility look like? Jesus shows us humility is revealed in our level of vulnerability and dependence on our Savior Jesus. My humility is revealed in how reliant I am on God. How dependent I am of Jesus. So the question is not how great am I. The question becomes how humble am I? How dependent am I on Jesus? And the paradox of Christianity, the more humble that we become, the more great we become in the kingdom of God. What does this humility do? Humility asks for help. Humility seeks counsel. Humility has a zeal for repentance. 
when we're reliant on Jesus, we have a zeal to repent. Humility has an awareness of one's own sin and brings that sin into the light, not other people's sin. Humility receives grace and doesn't abuse that grace. Humility asks to be carried from time to time. Have you ever been there? God, I need you to carry me. Because if you don't carry me, I don't know that I'll make it to tomorrow. And there's some things, God, that I need you to carry that I know you haven't called me to carry, but in my pride I've been trying to carry, so God, I give it to you. Humility receives God's mercy. This is a tough one. Humility receives God's mercy instead of taking credit and finding identity from human achievement. Humility produces patience and pain. Church, I wonder, how do we handle pain? Because we will face pain. How do we handle disappointment? Humility says, I get to worship in my pain. It's a pastor by the name of Bill Johnson. You may have heard of him. I don't know him personally. I know who he is. And I saw a conversation he had with his church not long after his wife graduated to heaven. She had a battle with cancer. And after his wife passed away, Bill, in the midst of his grief, sorrow, pain, and loss, tells his church and gives the perspective of saying, church, I don't want to miss this moment of being able to worship God in pain. Because when I get to heaven, I will never be able to do that again. There is no pain in heaven. But the humility to say, God, I get to worship you in my pain. So church, maybe the greatest gift this Christmas is humility. Maybe the greatest gift you can give your spouse is humility. Maybe the greatest gift you can give your workplace, the people around you, is humility. And while God resists the proud, the enemy welcomes it. In fact, the devil is attracted to pride. What does pride look like? It looks like this, how often, church, I've been here. I want things my way. Without God, without his word, I'm gonna rely on me, myself, and the things of this world. Pride doesn't need to pray. Pride doesn't need to read the word of God. Pride doesn't need to give. And while I would suggest we can still give in pride, I would suggest we cannot sacrificially give with pride. It takes humility to give sacrificially. Pride doesn't need to help others. Pride is selfish. Oh, church, this message is ironic for me to preach because how often I find myself selfish. Pride elevates myself and it lowers those around me. 
Pride is the devil's playground. That's where he hangs out. And pride opens the door to sin and gives the enemy a foothold because pride keeps sin in the dark away from the only one who can cleanse us from it. So a great question I think we could ask this Christmas as a community of believers is God, where am I prideful? If you're like me, I understand the question is not God, am I prideful? But I know the prayer is God, where? God, may I be humble enough to ask, where am I prideful? God, where am I resisting you? Where am I unwilling to rely on you? How often I have thought this, God, I know better than you. I I know better than the creator of the heavens and the earth. How often I need to humble myself. God, I don't know better. God, and at times your way, it hurts and it's inconvenient and it doesn't make sense. But may I be humble enough 